Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick Milliken from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And thanks for tuning in to another of our virtual events. And we are delighted tonight to have Steve Erzani. He's going to be talking about his, his book here, Perfect Shot. And Steve has signed a batch of copies for us very kindly. And I'll put a link in the comments field uh, if should you wish to purchase one. Um, let's see here. And then Jack Stewart is going to be talking about his new book called Unknown Rider. Barbara's holding up a copy there. And then uh, kind of conducting the interview is going to be our friend Connor Sullivan, author of Sleeping Bear and Wolf Trap. And I'm assuming another one coming imminently. So I'm sure we'll hear more about that. Um, if you have questions for any of the guys, just go ahead and put them in the comments field. And Barbara will bring me online towards the end of the hour, and I would be happy to ask any questions. So, Barbara, over to you. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you guys for joining us. This is great because we have authors zooming in from multiple locations, one of them, in fact, in Canada, which I'll talk about in just a minute. So just a couple words about the books. Jack is publishing this book from Severn River Publishing, and we're still waiting on copies to... Um, arrive at the store and Jack has very kindly offered to fly down and sign them in the course of his work. Apparently he comes through Phoenix. Maybe we'll ask him what course of work that actually is. So we can't sell you a, a copy of it just at the moment. Now I'm going to give big points to Steve Rossini because Steve lives in Toronto and in order to sign books for us, Steve had to actually drive to upstate New York where we have located a UPS store that has been groomed and how to deal with Canadian authors who want to come over and sign books for Americans and ship to them. And I won't go into all the reasons why that has to happen, but I really appreciate your doing that, Steve. And you'll be pleased to know that we only have a handful of copies left. So your work was not in vain. That's terrific. Thanks. You bet. Now, the other thing that I need to say is that I falsely represented Steve's background when I was promoting this event. I was thinking this was all military fiction all the time tonight. But in truth, while Jack is writing a Top Gun instructor, um, so very Tom Cruise elements to his book, which I love, it's off the coast of California, I misrepresented Steve. So Steve, tell us what your actual background is and set the record straight. Sure. Thanks, Barbara. Um... I'm not a combat veteran, as was mentioned in the newsletter, but I am a, a former paramedic and tactical medic with the, a police tactical medic with the Ontario Provincial Police, in a nutshell. Right. So both the point is that they are authentic in what they are writing about. Um, and I think that, I think it's hard to write military fiction now without some sort of, um, if not background, at least somebody like Mark Rainey, who's gone to all the trouble of training. You know, so that he has um, he has experience, even if he didn't actually serve in the military. Um, and I I wonder if this tracks along with this whole own voices thing. You know that you can't write you can't write a number of things, especially if you're indigenous voices or different cultural voices. You almost need to be one today. Um, do you think that that might be true? Uh for myself, I don't believe it is true. I think um, you you mentioned Mark Greeny is a perfect example. Um, I was fortunate enough to take him up in an F-18 in the course of his research. Ah. And so I got to fly with him. And um, even before that, I knew that he took uh, his work seriously in terms of representing it correctly and, and doing the research and putting in the work. So I think any good author can do that. And I know Connor is also a great example. Um, his books uh, portray the military and, uh, you know, the ground branch, uh, I think, very accurately. And I think he has contacts in those uh, organizations that can attest to that. Yeah, I would I would add, though, well, I agree with Jack to a point. I think there is, uh, among the reading public, I think there is probably a, a, an element of readership that searches for that authenticity. And not that you can't get authentic by writing as Mark Rainey does, and obviously Tom Clancy did in his day, from just a, a very well-informed position about, I mean, you can come up with great stories and great authenticity, but I think the readers these days also look for that. They look for the Jack Cars and the Brad Brad Taylors. Um, they want to hear that voice that they've been there and done that. I think there's room for people who haven't and who are just 
excellent crafting stories like Brad Thor and Mark Rainey. But those two gentlemen, I think maybe they're starting today, might find a little more difficulty. Um, bottom line is we just have to keep writing and hope people will keep picking up what we read, what we write. Well, I am personally a fan of it's fiction and anybody can write whatever they want. I, I didn't mean to say that I personally subscribe to the idea that you have to be what you write. Um, I mean, you know, I grew up on the Oz books and as far as I know, L. Frank Baum actually never went to Oz or rode the Hungry Tiger, um, you know, and who cared? But I do think publishers are more concerned maybe it, it, that reaching an audience um, demands a certain level of authenticity, but I think a good author can do research. And as you point out, Mark has actually gone out there and, and lived that. Clive Gosler is another one. I mean, Clive, you know, went out and kind of lived the adventures that he wrote about. So I'm hoping that this this thing about authenticity is not going to stifle people from writing what they feel like. So Connor, I promised I would be quiet and turn this over to you. And I know you will hardly believe that, but I'm really going to do it. <laughs> Well, well, thank you so much for having me and being able to host this. Um, you know, I want to start, I think we'll start with Steve because your debut came out yesterday and then we'll go to Jack, whose debut comes out. Was it next Tuesday? Next Tuesday. Awesome. Well, congrats to you both. I mean, it is the greatest feeling in the world to, you know, come out with your debut and work year after year to reach this moment. Um, you know, before we get in kind of the nitty gritty of your books, you know, Steve, I wanted to ask you, like, what was your you know, spark noted, but like, what was your writing journey from when did you want to be a writer? How did this come in? And then kind of end it when you started writing Perfect Shot. Thanks, Connor. That goes back a long way. So I, I, I'm one of those guys who always wanted to be a writer. I think I looked at my, my dad was a voracious writer and he was John le Carré, Georges Simenon. Um, he, he read broadly, but he really had a, a preference for the thriller genre. Uh, Ian Fleming was always on the shelf as well. So I grew up looking at his bookshelves and for some reason, don't know where it came from, always wanting to have my own book next to those other books. So that spark started from a very, very young age. And I used to dabble in writing um, in, in grade school. I would write stories. I would mock up fake novels. I would literally put covers on workbooks um, with novel names and you know I would draw really bad art on them and and have a publisher's imprint on the bottom so I was doing that I guess was a must have been a pathologic illness I suppose but from the age of eight or ten or even earlier um, so that journey started young but I didn't really I, I tried my hand at writing back in the 90s actually penning a novel and I hit a wall and uh, I couldn't you know to break through that wall, I didn't find the advice I was looking for because every piece of writing at the time, 90s, so the internet wasn't huge with lots of advice columns for pantsers. Everything I saw talked about, if you want to be a writer, you have to be an outliner. And that didn't work. So I laid it all down. And then I got curious about uh, some friends of mine had, a, they were running a TV show or people I met ended up becoming friends. They were running a, a TV show about a tactical police unit or police tactical unit. And I talked to them in the showroom, or the sorry, the writer's room, the showrunners in the writer's room, and expressed the desire to write. And they just basically finally said, you know, Steve, if you want to write, just write. That was around 2010, and that's where I decided to literally pick up a pen and start actually making a, a serious concerted effort at writing. And I just chiseled away, chiseled away at different characters and different stories. And finally, over time, the character of Alex Martell kind of grew out of the, you know, the ramblings I was doing on the page and on the screen. And eventually I came out with a, a finished manuscript that I showed up at Thriller Fest with back in 2018. And from those early days and my first run at Pitch Fest at Thriller Fest, um, that's when I finished my first work and moved on to my second work and submissions and ended up with my agent and got to where I am now. That's sort of the abbreviated version, but that's essentially it. Wow, that's really cool. All right, Jack, same question. Let's kind of brush a bit on your uh, your your previous career. Do you want to explain to the audience what you used to do? Because it was a pretty cool job. Yeah, sure. Um, well, for 23 years, I was fortunate enough to fly the F-18 for the United States Navy. 
And uh, I did three deployments on aircraft carriers and spent some time on the ground um, with an Air Force tactical air control party. So the guy on the ground calling in airstrikes, uh, talking to the people in the airplanes like I used to be. And then uh, I did a deployment with JSOC uh, in uh, Africa. Um, so kind of a unique um, career path for me. I did graduate from Top Gun and spent the last uh, 11 years in an adversary squadron uh, in New Orleans. So playing the bad guy, if you will, for, for training, but yeah, kind of like Steve, I mean, all through there, I was, I was reading, I was writing and I never really took it seriously until, uh, I'd say to my last deployment, 2015 is when I kind of said, okay, I'm going to finish my first book. And, uh, and it took me several, uh, manuscripts before I could finally get an agent and I ended up with the same agent as Steve. Uh, so we're both with, with John Talbot and, um, uh, funny enough about that, Steve was actually a lifeline to me because when I had a conversation with John, um, I thought he offered me representation, but I wasn't sure. And so I immediately called Steve and I said, Steve, I just had this strange phone call. And he goes, let me guess. He didn't tell you he's representing you. I'm like, yeah, I have no idea. And he goes, just call him back. So if it wasn't for Steve, I would probably be still a nervous wreck trying to figure out whether or not I'm going to be a published author one day. That's hilarious. Um, all right, well, we can jump kind of right back, like right into uh, Steve's book. Uh, how did the Alex Martell character come to life in your head? And how long has she been in your head? And what were there other manuscripts and books before this? Or was this the first one? Out of, so, you know, out of that, that story I told you about the writer's room and the showrunners, I started dabbling in screenplays and, uh, um, I thought, you know, I thought maybe novels wasn't the thing for me. So I went after screenplays and I was playing around with some different concepts and ideas and storylines. And then one day I started writing a story that featured um, uh, this female. I, I'd written lots of, I had started writing lots of male stories, male protagonist stories, and they didn't go anywhere. I couldn't find the right voice. Uh, the characters weren't coming alive in my head or really on the page. But then one day I was writing this story. It was around 2014. Um, that the, her name on the page, she was an Interpol investigator in Amsterdam, and her name was Rachel Danaher. And it turned out um, that story didn't go anywhere, but then I worked on the next one, and Alex Martell was born, and I realized that Alex was, in fact, Rachel. So it was a few years later that um, I started this other story. It morphed in, it was, it was a, a screenplay that was 30 pages in, and I realized I, I actually, as much as I like the screenplay idea, I saw it still in my head as a long form story, more of a novel. So I took those 30 pages and I transitioned it really into, into a novel. And that's where Alex was born. And that became my first Alex Martell story um, that I ended up, it took me four, four and a half years to write. That was my first finished manuscript that I went to Thriller Fest with. And eventually, after a lot of massaging that, you know, so-called finished manuscript back in 2018, I landed my agent, John Talbot, in 2019. We went out on submissions in February 2020 with that first one, which was called uh, By a Long Shot. And we all know what happened February 2020. New York kind of shut down. So John said it was a good idea if we pull it back out of submission and just keep going with the second one that I was already working on. So it was Alex Martell book number two that became Perfect Shot. And I finished that, subsequently went on submission with that. And that's what was picked up by Minotaur Books, St. Martin's Press as the first in the Alex Martell series. Awesome. And do you want to explain what, who Alex Martell kind of is and what her job is? Because it's it's very interesting what you did. Um, you usually see, you know, uh, maybe like a woman sniper in the United States, but you globe hop with her. I mean, you're, and you do it very well. Um, so do you want to explain kind of what her job was and like the research involved in that? Was that research that you had to go out and do, or did you know that from friends of yours or experiences or what? Yeah. So um, what I'm trying to figure out how can I, her backstory, you know, I kind of started with the backstory. It was a different backstory to begin with, but when I ran into um, a few roadblocks trying to come up with a concept of a, a, a 
U.S. Army sniper, a female U.S. Army sniper. And the time that Alexandra Martel, which is what her name is, and the time that Alexandra Alex Martel needed to be, have been in that sniper role, women weren't allowed in those roles in the U.S. Army. So I had to kind of massage, figure out how I'm going to make this person a great sniper who really technically couldn't have been a sniper in the U.S. Army. Yeah. So I ended up giving her the backstory similar to my own in the sense that I made her a medic, a combat medic, someone who whose military occupational specialty was being someone who looked after other people and only through accident. Again, I don't want to give too much away because it is in part of the story, but only through accident, she falls into the role of being a sniper, something that turned out she had pretty good skills at. So, um, and then, you know, fast forward, she ends up leaving the army um, and joining with the FBI who send her over to Interpol and the Hague and that's how she gets attached to the Dutch National Police. But working in The Hague as an Interpol agent, she's put on this other sort of adventure that takes place. So, I mean, I had no sniper experience. I had some shooting experience as a, as a young man and as a child. Actually, I got my first rifle when I was 12. But I certainly had no experience at long-range precision shooting. So I was lucky enough to be introduced to a, uh, a Canadian Forces, Special Operations Forces sniper who had served multiple tours in Afghanistan. And uh, he's, he, he mentored me in both the art and science of long range shooting, uh, both on paper, so the science part of it, but also out in the field where he maybe, you know, crawl around on my belly and hide up in trees and, and engage static targets at a long way away, but uh, nothing nearly as dramatic as I put Alex through. Very cool. All right, uh, Jack, we'll start with you. Your, your, so I read your book, man, like a year and a half ago, when it was just a Word document, you were looking, I think, still for representation, you were looking, you know, to get it published. Um, and it's Colt Bancroft, right? That's the name of your, your protagonist? Yeah, Colt, Colt Bancroft. Yes, and yeah. Punky, right? Yeah. Okay, so explain to us who Colt Bancroft is, and is is this based off you is this you know who you would want to be or someone you knew yeah. describe your character and kind of the situation yeah. and then and, and then kind of lead into the plot of your book so uh, so colt bancroft is a top gun instructor um so he is a recognized expert in um in fighter aircraft and uh it is definitely not me probably who i would want to be um but uh, he's just way cooler than i am um, the way the way the book kind of came about, um, I read an article, uh, it's probably, uh, I don't know if it was 2021, maybe 2020, somewhere around there. And um, there was these strange lights that were seen swirling a Navy destroyer off the coast of California. And uh, the article, you know, it, it had had pictures of of the ship's log, where they were trying to figure out what these lights were and what these orbs were. Uh, it was foggy. It was nighttime. It was very eerie. And of course, the, the insinuation is that it was UFOs or something extraterrestrial. Uh, but the FBI got involved. They tried to uh, find out where these lights were coming from. And I I started thinking about it. And obviously, the F-18 community have, has had a lot of people who have seen UFOs, myself included, and who have reported about it quite uh, openly in front of Congress on Joe Rogan. And um, I wanted to think, like, what if like what's a reason for that? And um, maybe it's not little green men, maybe it's something else. And so I started thinking about what if it was foreign technology of some kind, what would they be doing? Why would they be harassing a Navy ship? So that became the opening scenes of unknown writer. And uh, basically what happens in, in the book is um, Colt Bancroft takes off from an aircraft carrier off the coast of California. And uh, he goes and investigates these strange lights. And in the course of doing so, he loses control of his jet, which is a fifth generation stealth fighter, the F-35 joint strike fighter. And it just rolls in on a guided missile cruiser and he can't control it. He doesn't know what's going on. At the last minute, he recovers. And so he, the Navy thinks he's screwed up and they're set out to hang him. And he knows that he didn't screw up that something's wrong with the jet so he wants to clear his name and figure out what happened to the jet in the course of doing so he runs into punky king and punky you know i i don't want to call her a sidekick but because she's 
as much a protagonist or a hero as Colt is in this book. She's an NCIS agent and she focuses on counterintelligence. And so she's looking for a spy who's on the carrier that Colt took off from. And so their two worlds come together, the military, the espionage world, they come together and it, and it, it unveils this plot um, that they have to kind of get to the bottom of. But I should say, as a person whose entire experience of Top Gun would be the first Tom Cruise movie and the most recent Tom Cruise movie, I was enthralled. I thought that your action scene was absolutely terrific, Jack. And of course, I like the fact that, you know, it's off the coast of California, a, you know, place that I'm familiar with. But I really did think that you, um, you know, I don't know if you could have written that scene if you didn't actually fly a plane like that. Well, thank you very much. And that was my whole goal is I wanted to give the reader kind of a glimpse of what it's like inside a you know, fighter jet and kind of the stress and the emotions that the fighter pilot feels. So thank you. Oh, you did it really well. I also want to mention, Connor, while I'm talking, because, you know, I can't resist, um, that um, the Th Big Thrill magazine just yep. published an absolutely terrific interview with Steve. Um, and the interviewer is... Neil Nyron, who's been an editor as long as I've been a bookseller, he's um, John Sanford's editor still and CJ Box's editor. So he's a wonderful guy to be interviewing. And he particularly likes interviewing debut authors to tell you, you know, why he admires them and what he thinks you should be looking for. So um, I'm going to put a link in our next newsletter, the one that will accurately depict you, <laughs> Steve, um, to the article, because it's really well worth reading. And for aspiring writers, I think it also has some very good information in it. Is there anything there, Steve, that you remember? You probably memorized it by now that you'd uh, like to quote. Yeah, you know, first of all, it was just a, it was such a thrill to be interviewed by Neil. And um, I had met Neil again, my first Thriller Fest back in 2018. And again, we chatted in 2019. And he's such a great guy. Very nice. Very nice man. So knowledgeable. Um, you're kind of around uh, kind of around publishing royalty when you're talking to Neil. So the fact that he picked my book, he emailed me, reached out and he said, that uh, he had enjoyed reading the book and it was making a November pick and wanted to feature it in an interview. That was a thrill. But one of the things that stood out to me was he made me recall um, the best advice I ever received. And, and I think for writers, there's a lot of advice out there. And, and I, in the story, in the article, I, I do mention that I think people should take classes and courses and learn their craft and learn from other writers and, and, uh, and read widely and broadly. Um, but it's equally important to be selective about the advice you take to heart. Sure, listen to everybody's advice and take notes, but in the end, you have to know what the right advice for you is, and you have to listen with a discerning ear for the advice that strikes a note for me. And like I said, the biggest advice, best advice I ever received was just right. Don't worry about what other people say or do. If you feel strongly that you have a story to tell, tell the story and just get it out there and have the discipline to finish it. So I think for me, the article was a great article and fun to go through. Um, but in the end, it was the advice I received and was able to pass on in the article that probably sounded the, the, the most true to me. Cool. Um, so what kind of advice, Jack, do you have, let's just say, for aspiring writers? Because, I mean, you had a pretty, I mean, you were very on it. Like, you were so persistent to get an getting an agent and then getting published. Like, what what would you tell you know, the man or woman coming up. Yeah, I'm, I'm persistent, stubborn. There's a lot of words that you can use there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the best advice that I can give to anybody that wants to pursue this is to uh, be ready. Um, how can I say this politely? To, to be, uh, to take one on the chin, like almost every single day. I mean, it's, it's a industry that is rife with disappointment. Um, from sending out query letters and not hearing back at all, uh, not even a rejection, but just silence. And if you're not committed to kind of the end goal and what you want to accomplish, it's so easy to give up. And so it's so easy to see why so many people give up. I mean, finishing a novel is hard. That's an accomplishment in itself. But to actually end up, you know, where Steve, you know, was yesterday, where I will be next week, um, that takes, you know, somebody that can can uh, take it on the chin and and just keep trucking. So um, have the goal in mind. Don't let anyone tell you no and just and just keep going. That's that's my advice. 
And if I could, can I add to that, Connor, for a second? The yeah, other thing, found, the other thing that I found really important, and, and and Jack mentioned it earlier, and it's something we have in common. Jack and I have become good friends, as have you know the three of us, really. So it's important to find those people um, in in this industry that you can commiserate with and cry in your <laughs> soup or or in your bourbon, whichever your potion is. But you know, ultimately. Writing is a pretty lonely activity, and but you shouldn't be lonely or alone as a writer. You should find people who you can talk to and spend time with, whether it's virtually, um, you know, in FaceTime calls or texting or whatever it is, but people you can rely on to lift you up out of your doldrums if you're feeling particularly depressed. For me, Simon Gervais was somebody who, um, and I know Barbara, you know Simon, um, he's a great guy. Um, and he, I connected with Simon right away in my first Thriller Fest, which is again why conferences are important for people to go to. And Simon became that confidant of mine who just kept me going over the years to make sure that I was being persistent and not giving up and, you know, reminding me that, no, you're a good writer. You've got what it takes. It's just going to take time to get there. And it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So I think it's important writers seek out like-minded others um, who can help them just keep focused on, you know, Keep your eyes on the prize and that prize is if it's publishing traditionally or publishing self-publishing whatever it is but just who can help them do that and keep them moving forward mm -hmm. yeah um i know you said steve earlier that your your dad was kind of a big influence in like the books that he read do you have like specific authors that when you were sitting down to write and you were trying to figure out you know what kind of writer you wanted to become were there any that you were trying to emulate? Because that's one big thing that I did when I was trying to figure out, you know, what kind of writer am I? I still don't know, but, you know, I, I had a lot of my heroes that I wanted to be like, or I wanted to write similar to. Did you have any of that? And then, Jack, of course, same question for you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my first forays into the thriller reading were the Tom Clancy and Robert Ludlum novels, okay. and they blew me away. I mean, Hunt for Red October... Um, the Jason Bourne series, those books, the voice and the tone and the action just showed me how different that world was compared to what I had been reading, which was Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Frank Herbert, you know, the, the sci-fi world. And it was when I started reading Nelson DeMille, his John Corey stories, I just couldn't get, I would lay in bed reading those books and laugh out loud because John Corey, burned out detective, told in the first person. I just found that character so humorous, but so insightful and so competent in what he did. So in a way, it's almost a curse because every time when I'm writing, I still hear John Corey in my head. So sometimes if Alex is being a smart Alec, which she often is, you know, it's partly probably infused with John Coreyisms or things that I've imagined or envisioned, you know, that character saying or thinking. Um, so yeah, I would say Nelson DeMille for sure. Uh, the first person voice is so powerful. So I think that's why that one stands out to me, but all the other thriller writers as well, and especially the ones I mentioned, Tom Clancy, and Robert Ludlum, big heroes of mine. And of course you can jump forward to the modern day. There's so many great ones. I won't start listing them because I'll never be able to stop, but there's a lot of great ones out there now. That's funny. You say Nelson DeMille, because when I was reading your book, um, I could kind of get that cadence in the dialogue that that was it was similar to that. So that's really funny you said that. Jack, what about you? Um, Connor Sullivan is the only one. Nice <laughs> question. Just kidding. <laughs> um, no, no. I mean, I think what Steve said is right. There's so many modern day authors that I'm I'm such fans of, and the cool thing is now I can pick up my phone and text them and say, "Hey, I just finished your latest book and love this." and and have that dialogue, which is amazing, because I wish I had that with my childhood heroes. You know, uh, Tom Clancy, again, was a huge one for me. Stephen Koontz, I mean, Flight of the Intruder. Uh, when I knew I wanted to be a naval aviator, that book was like my Bible. Um, Dale Brown, you know, the Flight of the Old Dog, just the old school, Craig Thomas, Firefox, um, all those old school uh, military techno thrillers, espionage thrillers from the Cold War era. Uh, that that was my bread and butter. But you know, I read I read everything. I read science fiction. I read fantasy. Um, Stephen King. I think I've read every single book that guy has put out, and they're still phenomenal. Um, and I, I don't know. I 
it's funny because I take my influences from different areas. Uh, my mom, who's probably listening, hi mom. Um, her one of her favorite authors is Diana Gabaldon, and she got me to read those books after years of pressuring me to read them. And I was like, no, I'm not going to read them. No, no, I'm not reading that, mom. And then I picked it up, and I was like, okay, this is good. And it's just a different voice, a different genre, um, but it's storytelling, and it's how an author can can convey that that I find so fascinating. And so um, I like to think I'm developing my own voice. And um, obviously, you know, my my books tend to be more on the technical side, so you know, I kind of lean more on the Tom Clancy, but I do try to pull from kind of everywhere in terms of influence. Interesting. Well, you said technical side, and that was kind of where I wanted to go to next with both of you. I, you know, I wasn't in the military, but I grew up around, you know, most of my, a lot of friends and family were, or in, you know, Central Intelligence Agency or what have you. And when I sat down and I said, you know, I kind of want to enter this, the spy genre, I want to enter, you know, with a little bit of, you know, military in there as well. I want to try to get as much right as possible. And I found that personally that it would always kind of get in the way of my plot or my plot would kind of get in the way of, you know, what's really re real. And maybe that was just me, you know, not having the skills really to do it. I mean, it feels like Tom Clancy was able to, you know, always be, I mean, compared to anyone else, I don't think anyone was better than him in that regard. I mean, he was amazing in his research and the way he could just put things on the page and with the plot I feel like I have to kind of be wishy-washy on things to get you know a plot device to work or I have to kind of change what's real in the real world kind of put it into my universe well in my universe it works this way did you guys when you sat down to write were you trying to make it as accurate as possible but then did you hit a roadblock of being you know I'm gonna have to kind of change this a little bit you know hopefully the technical person I talked to, or in Jack, in your case, you know, I hope, you know, my, my friend pilots aren't reading this and saying, and shaking their heads. I mean, explain some of that. Not, yeah. Go ahead, Jack. Yeah. Um, well, it's absolutely right. I mean, my biggest fear when next Tuesday rolls around is that all my pilot friends are going to read this book and go, this guy is full of it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, because obviously um, reputation is everything like Colt Bancroft believes uh, in the fighter pilot community. So, uh, that's really important to me, but the one thing that I always keep in the back of my mind is that the reader is not stupid, right? So I don't need to explain something in such great detail to try to prove how smart I am, but I can use a tool. I can use a weapon system. I can use an aircraft in a way that if the reader doesn't quite get everything that I'm trying to say, they can at least infer what I'm meaning by how it's being used. And so I try not to let it slow down the story. I try to just kind of weave it in. Um, but I do know there are times when the military is very heavy in jargon, very heavy in acronyms. And so I try to um, counter that by including a glossary on my website that readers can go to um, and hopefully maybe it explains a little bit more of what some of these tools are. And if there's something that I don't put in my glossary that isn't explained well in the book, hopefully they can, they can email me and say, Hey, what does this mean? And I can add it to the website glossary. So I try to try to find line between educating on some of the stuff that I use on a daily basis when I was flying uh, F-18s in the Navy and um, and also just assuming that the reader is somewhat intelligent can figure it out from what I'm what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and for me, it's you know when I'm writing, I, I want to get close to truth, close to factual. So I call it truth adjacent or reality adjacent. So I'm not trying to make it um, you know the absolute gospel of arms or weapon systems or you know, the military structure or whatever, because you can get, first of all, I, I've never been in the military. And when I look at, you know, the, the, how a, the regiments and battalions and squadrons and platoons and the names of everything, you can get so bogged down and trying to learn that I would inject too much into the story that someone would easily be able to pick apart as not authentic because it, it would look too much like I've read it, studied it and regurgitated it onto the page. 
So I try to brush up against it and, and make sure that the reader understands this is the background without going into too much detail. And I try to do the same, you know, with even weapon systems, probably one of the, you know, my book came out yesterday, but there's still over 100 reviews on Goodreads already. And most of them are very positive, but the negative ones or any that stray towards criticism usually strays or usually points out the jargony, acronymy nature of the stories. And they have to be that way because they're military or intelligence or policing related. So of course there are acronyms. And my world as a, as a medic, I mean, we didn't talk English when we're talking to each other at a hospital or at the station. You talked in the medical jargon that everybody understood, but you wouldn't, and same on the radio. If you're in an ambulance or a police car and you hear the radio chatter, most people would never be able to decipher that without having a lot of experience or spending a lot of time in that environment. And I try to be cognizant, cognizant of that when I'm writing that it's not about necessarily bringing all that to the reader, but it's bringing it close enough that they feel like they're in it. Um, and I love Jack's idea. I thought I've dabbled with the notion of a, a glossary for my uh, for my books. And I don't know yet what my editor will say about book two, which is in her hands now, whether she'll ask her one. But I like the idea of putting a glossary onto, onto the website that readers can go to if they need to, because it, it, I've, I've used glossaries before. I find them very helpful. Yeah, that is a good idea to put that on your website. I actually never thought about that. I know a lot of people put it in the beginning of their books. Um, like Mark Greeny will put like characters' names in the beginning of his like his Gray Man series. And that's always helpful because you can just flip back and forth. I, I'm actually going to do that with my next book because, yeah, it can get a little confusing sometimes. Make it uh, right now. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I found with both of your books is that the pacing is so fast, so high. Yeah. Was that something that you were cognizant of when you sat down there? Like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I know thrillers need to have pacing, but I feel like in this day and age, and I'm always cognizant of it, you know, this day and age, everyone has one of these, right? We're addicted to those things. And if someone, you know, is going to spend the time to pick up a book, at least the way I look at it is, you know, I better glue the reader to the page. Is that something that both you were thinking of? when you sat down to write your thrillers or? Uh, yes and no. So, so the perfect shot is probably better paced than the first one I wrote. And that was probably more conscious. The first book I wrote, which again, we'll probably never see the light of day. You know, that was my practice document. That was my practice ma uh, manuscript that is, it was a good story and it was fun, but probably not that great. Mm -hmm. um, and the pacing wasn't, as good in that one and I know that because my agent told me um readers probably you know mainly my wife have probably told me that so I think writing perfect shot I was more conscious about keeping the chapters shorter keeping the attention you know recognizing the attention span of myself as well as probably the average reader is it's not reading you know a Ken Follett novel the way they used to read in the 90s or or you know back in the day it's everything like you said everybody has a much shorter attention span myself included so I do want to write faster just like I want to read faster and I find myself when I'm reading a book especially most of my best reading time is when I'm laying in bed ready to go to sleep so I don't have I don't have the ability to stay awake long enough to read lengthy detailed chapters so I do want that fast pacing because it'll help move me through the story, help keep me awake. And I find that that's what I try to inject into my own stories now. Um, partly because I enjoy it in my own writing, but I recognize that that's probably what the reader really wants too. Hmm. Um, I'm going to stick in a comment because I agree with you that I think that people who read thrillers, you know, do want them to have a lot of action and be fast paced. But there is a counter movement going on right now which is taking the novel back to much longer form, much bigger book. Um, Tan Wang Ng's The House of Doors is absolutely magnificent. Goes on forever. It's about Somerset Mom, and it's said in mm -hmm. Penang in South Africa in the 1920s. Um, you know, Vergesi's The Covenant of Water has just been phenomenal. And these are all outlander-sized books, 
you know, and the sentences, I have to say the sentences in the House of Doors, some of them are like um, several lines long. And I've actually, rarely for me, I've actually had to look up words um, in order to read them. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm seeing more of that. And publishing generally is about countervailing trends. It always is, from the entire time I've been in it, there's a kind of role to it where one kind of right now romance and the rom fantasy is the biggest thing on there i just looked at the times bestseller list right now and michael Connolly is number three underneath the two books by rebecca yaros hmm. and you know right there i think that that pretty much encapsulates encapsulates the idea that um you know readers are flocking to different kinds of books uh, you you need to be aware of what lane you're in and what you're comfortable writing. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think you said that really well, Steve. But I'm also finding, as I say, that there's a, a whole countervailing thing. And um, I've had to talk about publishing recently, which doesn't really make any sense. I mean, it truly is an industry, if you call it that, that doesn't make any sense. And here's why I think that's true, is that it's trying to marry creativity, um, art, to business mm. and trying to fuse those together it, it you know they, they're often antithetical but trying to make sense out of you know a creative act and then what what makes a business work is very hard and as publishing's become more corporate and where there's a lot more money involved and a lot more structure that um trying to fuse them together has become more difficult as a consequence, and another good thing, there's a lot more small presses that are suddenly rising up like mushrooms, you know, to try to deal with that. Jack's, Jack is an example. Seven River Publishing is not, not a major house, um, but great that it's giving authors the chance. But the frustration that you have mentioned about, you know, trying to get an agent, trying to get her, all the rest of it, is because the whole damn thing is really subjective. They can talk all they want about how it's data-driven and all the rest of it. But bottom line is, it's really subjective. And, you know, you keep writing and you hope that someplace you will connect with somebody who can make something happen for you. That's really, you know, because there is no, there's no actual, you know, mathematical formula that says, okay, this manuscript came in and this is why it's going to work. Mm -hmm. It's always a subjective decision. Yeah. yeah. I really, oh, go ahead, Jack. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was going to say it definitely is uh, subjective and, you know, I think we were, we were talking earlier about um, Terry Hayes new book and, you know, that's, that's one where I think they're putting the art before the business because his last one came out. I looked 2013, I am Pilgrim, which was a fantastic book. One of my favorites. And I've been waiting 10 years for the second book to come out. And he and will now... be here. He will be here, Jack, on February oh. 12th. So if you want to wait, you can come Fe and see Fe your February book. February 12th. Okay, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> I will be there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been waiting 10 years for the second book. To, and that's where I think art has kind of superseded the business side of things, you know. Um, but but getting getting back to the, the pacing discussion, um, I... I for, for myself and the way I write, I tend to write in smaller chunks because I want something easily digestible, but those chunks don't have to be fast paced. They can be slow because I like to have some ups and downs in terms of the emotion, because the last thing I want as a reader is to open a book and have my heart rate soaring through the roof for 350 pages. I want some, I want a chance to catch my breath, you know, go get a drink of water Okay, calm down. Okay. And and so you need those kind of slower scenes. And so I try to have the ups and downs, but each one for me, each scene is going to be a smaller chunk, maybe 1500 words, 2000 words, something that you could easily digest in one sitting and have a nice concrete break to where you can, okay, put it down, go to sleep when you're, you know, when it's bedtime, Steve. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's that I mean, that's how I write, but it's also I think in terms of cinema, um, I, in my head, I'm seeing a movie playing out that I'm sort of transcribing into a Word document. And, you know, a whole movie takes place in two hours, three hours. Um, but you can have those fast-paced scenes and you can have the slow scenes as well. 
but they all are very kind of short um, scenes that kind of weave together to tell the whole story. And so that's how I try to, to write my books. It's nice for the reader to have a break and catch his breath. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you were talking about cinematically and, and uh, I'm, I'm the same. I, when I'm writing my own material, it's, I'm picturing it. I'm sure a lot of writers, so I'm picturing it cinematic. I'm picturing it as a movie unfolding in front of me that I'm essentially transcribing into an, into a novel form. Um, and I don't like you mentioned about pacing. I don't want to go to a movie and watch, you know, 180 minutes of nonstop action without any, without any break. There's got to be those peaks and valleys where there's good action, but maybe there's some contemplative moments where the, you actually get better character development in those quieter moments where you can learn more about who a person is, who the hero is, who her adversary is, the antagonist, the villain of the story. So I really find that's important. Um, you know, the I, I always am conscious about not injecting my writing with purple prose, but I do like sometimes some colorful language and descriptive language in the stories. And I think of some of the most beautiful writing that I encounter these days, and Louise Penny is, I forget what book she's on now, 12, 13, 14, 18, whatever it is, but whenever I read a Louise Penny not, novel, so Inspector Armand Gamache of the you know, the Surete de Quebec. So it's a Canadian book, Canadian setting and characters. Um, but I always find her books, they're not fast paced in the sense that they're not high action stories, but there's a lot of great character development that I really enjoy. And it's that slow pace. And you, she really has an opportunity to portray, you know, those quiet moments and infuse them with so much color and vibrancy through her language. And it just, I read a paragraph sometimes and reread it you know, 10 or 15 times, because you just wonder how someone came up with that. But action and pacing is great. But I think ultimately, like you said, we've got to take breaks and give our readers some other type of reward for sticking with us. Anything else, Connor, you want to add before we call Patrick up? Um, I think that's it. I was going to, I think I was going to ask what's next for both of you. I know Jack's probably written about 12 books this year and Steve just handed in his second. <laughs> yeah you can maybe you can tell the audience a little bit what, what you guys are working on next and what's in the foreseeable future uh my, mine's a little bit longer <laughs> um book two in the battleborn series which is the follow-on to unknown Rider, is called outlaw that one comes out february 20th um i just turned in book three to my publisher um that one's titled bogey spades and that one will be out in the summer of 2024 book four uh will finish up probably around this time next year and uh recently just announced um that i am partnering with chad robichaud to write a series with tyndale um is a um a chat just chad's background is a uh, former force recon marine uh, he was an mma fighter as well and uh he did a lot of great things um in the joint special operations um uh Joint Special Operations Command uh, overseas, and, and it's called Advanced Force Operations. So it's sort of a, a mix between tradecraft as a spy and also special operations um, worlds kind of combined. Um, but it's it's undercover, um, fake identity by yourself, and um, and so we're kind of going to delve into that world with this series. Uh, and I've I've uh, we've finished book one, uh, and, and we're working on book two right now. So. Um, I've got a lot of books coming up. I turned in book two. <laughs> Jack is a writing machine for sure, but I turned in book two. So we're just going to hopefully finish editing, editing that up pretty soon or get to work, you know, on bringing that out, uh, which should be coming out next fall. And I'm just working on book three. So I, I can't compete with my writer machine friend over here, but, uh, <laughs> but it moves forward. How about you, Connor? <laughs> Um, I am about halfway into my third. Um, it's due soon. I just had a, uh, my first kid a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that definitely delayed the, uh, the deadline. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going and it'll probably come out either late next year, early 2025, but it is, I guess I, it, it's, I think it's been announced. It's, it's going to be called Red Falcon and it'll be a sequel to my second book, Wolf Trap. Well, oh, that's pretty good news. Steve, is your, your continuing character? 
Yes, it is. It's a series. So it's uh, Alex Martell and some of the same cast of characters around her. Wonderful. Well, that's really good news. It is a great idea, Connor, to always leave the audience in the expectation that more will be coming. <laughs> great question, for yeah. sure. Patrick, you want to come and join us? Sure. Yeah, making boxes back here, Barbara, while I'm watching the program. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's some good questions that have come in. Uh, Fred would like to know, are any of you gents going to be at the VoucherCon in Nashville? Steve is? Jack yep. is? Yep. Uh, I might be. I don't know. Uh, probably. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. Um, Renee asks, are your wives, spouses supportive of your writing? Are they your first readers? For me, uh, both counts, yes. So uh, my wife is a former paramedic, and now she's been teaching the paramedic program for decades. So she's my first reader, my first editor. Um, she has a magic red pen. So <laughs> I, my word count is heavy. She makes it a lot lighter. But I count on her for the, that first read, for sure. Yeah. Um, and for me, um, mine... Uh, likes to keep me in check when I, I start to stray too much into the military jargon. And, uh, and so it kind of keeps me in check so that I'm not going full Tom Clancy and can kind of rein it in for the uh, normal reader. Um, my wife is very supportive of my career, but she's not, I would say, much of a reader. Uh, she usually reads the book when I get the arc and when she can hold it physically in her hand. English isn't her first language, so she's not... She like she reads books in Spanish sometimes, but yeah, I wouldn't say. And she likes to listen to them on audio, but yeah, very supportive. Is your father um, uh, supportive? And I know he's supportive, but is he? Uh, does he read your work in progress, or do you go to him at all? Yeah, he's usually my first reader. Um, I'll I'll hand it to him, and then he's you know. I wouldn't say supportive on um, those drafts I hand to him, but he's very, he, he rips them apart and he tells me what I'm doing wrong. And then I, I go back to it, but yeah, he'll usually see some version of it before my editor does. He's the opposite father, what's going on with your father? Yeah. Oh, uh, he, his book is coming. His next book, it's called all the glimmering stars. I might've missed that, messed that up. Um, that's coming out in May and that's being announced very soon. He was actually just in New York City doing, getting ready for big publicity. Um, but I think it's his best book. It's a historical fiction um, based off of a story that some of our SEAL Team 6 and CIA ground branch friends uh, came to him with. They made this documentary about 10 years ago about this unbelievable real life story in Uganda and they kind of pitched it to my dad or they showed it to me and I pitched it to my dad. And I said, I think this is your next big book. And he watched the little documentary and we immediately, you know, they went to Uganda for a while and they talked to everyone and it's written. It's, it's, yeah, I'd say it's probably my favorite book of his and that's coming out in May, early May. Wonderful. For those of you watching who don't know who Connor's father is, his name is Mark Sullivan. Um, wonderful writer that we have followed from the very beginning. Um, so I'm very happy to see that he is um, continuing to do good work. Patrick? Yeah. Um, okay. Linda asks, what are your attitudes about including, uh, adding a little bit of romance to your stories? Jack? <laughs> I mean, uh, when the situation calls for it, I think romance is necessary. There are some authors that can pull it off well, but when you're doing it just for the sake of having it in there, it doesn't work at all. So um, in in my particular book, uh, Colt and Punky are both young, attractive, uh, male and female strong uh, characters, but I purposely wrote them in a way that is more of a sibling rivalry and not, not to have sexual tension. Um, but uh, not to say that that can't happen or develop over you know, the course of four books, but um, if it fits the story and it's needed, then, then I would, uh, I would love it. Yeah. And, and for perfect shot, you know, I put a Caleb and Alex, the two kind of main partner characters in the story. There's certainly, a, I think a healthy amount of 
sexual tension or tension between them where they're obviously attracted to each other. And uh, uh, I won't give anything away, but it's it certainly becomes a challenge. And I'm very leery of mistakes that I've seen in the past where characters have been put together too quickly into partnerships beyond you know the the the, the business-like partnerships and it's killed the series or killed the partnership. So I'm very careful. I'm I'm aware that you know there's that hunger out there, so to speak, for that dynamic. And I'd like to move in that direction, but I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to proceed with that. And I haven't really been able to weave that in yet in my work. I tried on the book that I'm writing right now, but it kind of the subplot kind of got in the way of the real plot. But hopefully one day I'll be able to hone that in and you know take a crack at it. Um, here's a good question from uh, Ryan Steck, who is also a writer, correct? Yeah. Um, he says, and this is a great question. If you had to write in a different genre, something other than thrillers, what genre would you write in? If Fantasy. thrillers were off the table, Definitely yeah, fantasy. Yeah, you're. Uh, sorry, I, I, yeah, I, I grew up like I said. I read uh, Terry Goodkind, um, obviously um, uh, Terry Brooks, um, Robert Jordan. Uh, you name it. I mean, I, I read everything fantasy. I still watch all the fantasy movies and TV shows when they come out. Um, I still read them when I can, but don't tell anyone. Um, so yeah, I would definitely write in that genre. For me, I would go probably, you know, gumshoe noir detective, hard-boiled detective kind of stories. I like that world. I like that uh, that whole Mickey Spillane. You know, I I can picture writing a story with a Humphrey Bogart type of character, Maltese Falcon guy. So that would be my, the one I'd love to try at some point down the road. I would say I would probably, my favorite writer is Dennis Lehane, and I love those type of books and I think one day I will kind of venture into that um I don't know maybe sooner than later but yeah definitely that or the uh what's the genre that you said was at the top of the list Barbara the New York Times list um it's called romantic well romantic fantasy but they're calling it romancy or something <laughs> like that you know everybody <laughs> shortens stuff up but I haven't read it because you know I have to be realistic that um I don't have I don't have time to read the books I don't have to read to sell them and yeah. you know it's a shame because I would love to read Yaros but I need to put my energy into reading books that aren't going to find an audience so easily and so I haven't gotten to them yet, but I'm told that they are amazing and they're, they, they fuse a lot of things. I mean, I think the great thing about that kind of writing is that it embraces all kinds of writing. You know, it has thriller aspect and fantasy and has romance and it has, you know, you name it. Um, so it's a very, very broad palette. Yeah, my my wife who doesn't read actually bought that book at Costco the other day and uh, is sitting on her bedside. So excellent. I hear people talking about it everywhere I go. So it's interesting how these trends kind of speak to a uh, you know a feeling that's out there in the air. Mm -hmm. You know, people are just tired of you know, you know, the comfort of of slipping into a fantasy world is very attractive. Mm -hmm. That's why historical fiction has made yeah a comeback too, because at least in historical fiction, you know how it came out. And the the traditional mystery, you know that the. the uh, Agatha Christie style, you know, every order is restored at the end of the book. And we don't see a lot of that now, do we? Um, let's see. Okay, Nathan. Okay, this is good. I don't know if he's still in Target, but he was in Target towards the beginning of the program. Uh, it says, I'm standing in Target listening. The checkout person thinks I'm crazy. Um, he has a good question. That is uh, the question I've always wanted to ask at any meet and greet. How do you decide when to bend the limits of realism and grounding for the sake of the story? And what is uh, what is the line of, hey, that's a bit too much? That's a great question. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah let Steve answer that one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm trying to understand the question. It's a That's a complex question. Um, I'm not sure what he means by bend realism. You know, I try to I, I, I try to remember when I'm writing that fiction is entertainment, that writing is entertainment and reading is entertainment. 
And so if by realism, he means um, the misery of life aspect, <laughs> then I try to stay a little bit away from that. And I try to keep it, I try to keep it more entertaining. I think in my mind, you know, I had a career that was a pretty gruesome career for, for more than 30 years. So when I write, I don't want to remind myself or readers about that side of life. So I consciously actually have certain rules about things I won't write about or or write into my stories. Um, I won't say what they are right now. Maybe that's a topic for another time. But so I think realism is important, but also being mindful in when I write that I'm writing to entertain. And, and I'm not dissing anybody's other form of writing because, of course, that's entertainment. But I try to keep it just a little lighter without dipping into the dark side, if that's what he means by realism. You know, I'm not sure that he does. Um, I think Want me to reread the question. Well, no, I mean, I think this comes up a lot of the time with historical fiction. And one of the questions is if you're writing about real, you know, in a time, real events and real people and all, how much can you fictionalize, you know, or, or bend, you know, the battle didn't place then, or, you know, the person didn't die till later, or whatever it is. So if you're dealing with real, real things, and you're fictionalizing it, how much can you bend what's really true in order to fit your story? Now, I might be wrong that that might not be what yeah. it means, but it, it does come up a lot. Um, the great thing about fantasy and science fiction is that it depends on world building. And so you can, as the author, you are actually creating you know, a whole world and universe and so forth. And maybe that's one reason it's so popular at the moment. Maybe, maybe. Writers, what, as well as with readers. Maybe what he's trying to get at, and Nathan, if you want to amplify this, but, you know, most police procedurals, you know, there's a lot of sitting around, waiting, staring at a computer, yeah. drinking coffee, all these little quotidian details that aren't particularly exciting, but are very realistic. So maybe that's kind of what he's getting at. You know, what what do you, how do you decide what to truncate, you know, for the sake of the story and to keep things moving? Um, yeah. I like, that in, I like that interpretation better with that you just gave yeah. backwards. <laughs> I, I, I think that's what, but I that's think why that's what it was a great question. At. All of us had yeah. different answers. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. You, Nathan, you should be thinking about writing a book. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in my my books, you know, like I said, they're technical, they're they are based on fact, but there are technologies that I include in there that may or may not exist. And and the way I look at it is it's within the realm of possibility that a foreign um you know hostile actor could possess this technology. So I'm gonna use it in my book. And in my book, it's real. And I know that a lot of other authors will do the same thing. This is my world. And it's within the realm of possibility, but we don't know that it is true or not. So I had this big, I believe button that I just hit and say, I believe, I believe it's true. And that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. That's something I wrestle with all the time. You know, I got, I get, sometimes get angry emails about, you know, something like plot points and like that, that's so outlandish. And, you know, that a lot of the stuff in my books are, you know, stories that my friends who've lived these lives would tell me that they actually did. And there's been numerous times where people will just get on me for that. That's, you know, so far-fetched. I'm like, that's a real story. That they that actually happened, you know? And so, but yeah, I mean, I'm always thinking about, you know, it, it, at a certain extent, like, you know, you if you're on deadline to get a book done, you just need to make it seem like it is real. You know, it's it might not be what'll happen in the real world, but in the universe in my story, it is. So in, yeah. respect to, in respect to Nathan, then I revise my answer and basically <laughs> go back to the footnote I gave him an earlier answer. You know, that whole truth adjacent, reality adjacent. Um, I'm like Jack, if it rings a note of truth, this can happen or this can be believable because I could see that happening, then I'm all in. And I read, you know, I'm I'm a bit of an expert in the world of uh, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear and explosives incident response. That's a mouthful weapons of mass destruction and i've seen the stuff that actually happens in the world you know that doesn't make it to the news and you just wouldn't believe most of it but it's true um so i just can go you know when i'm building a world or thinking of an incident you just have to turn the pages of some of the magazines out there that are in, for our industry and trade 
that will show you that these things could have and maybe even did happen. Well, Nathan is, has come back and he 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 loves everybody's answers and it's inspired a, a good little discussion here. Um, yeah, he says in the sense of military fiction or thriller, is there a point where uh, you might have to step beyond what's quote realistic uh -huh. and how far is too far, which you you've all just addressed. So that makes sense. Um, any other questions here? Uh, yeah, da, 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 da. I think that that's probably about it. Wonderful. Let me just jump over to YouTube real quick here. Uh, nope. We right. are good. Well, guys, it's really been a fascinating. Once again, the time has flown by and we've whipped past the whole hour. So it's been terrific. Um, thank you very much for joining us. I'm so glad that we've had a chance to introduce um, both Steve and Jack to new readers since um, you wouldn't have had a chance otherwise to have made their acquaintance. Um, and I wasn't kidding, Jack, when I said Terry Hayes actually will be here on February. And I wasn't kidding. I, I'll come. I, well, all right. So, you know, surely Jack you'll live here? be here by then. <laughs> no, Jack I, lives here in the valley? No, uh, but Jack, no. Jack flies by us um, in various Oh, okay. So right. whenever we get his books and Steve, um, I hope that maybe when you go to Nashville, you can then fly west. You know, that would be really nice if you could I'd love there. to. Connor, it's always a pleasure to have both you and your dad. So we will look forward to seeing you whenever that works out. Meantime, um, we have just a few copies left of Steve's Perfect Shot, which is our actual debut. It's our first mystery book of the month for November. So that's really um we so awesome. appreciate the fact that he went the last mile to the UPS store in order to make that happen. I'll and happily do the trip again. Getting Jack's book here for you to sign. So good night, everybody. And if we don't see you again, have a very happy Thanksgiving week. Thanks very much for joining us. Good night, all. Good night. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.